Welcome to the second Sports World Podcast. It's an honor to be here with Tirth Brombot. I'm Justin Jones. How you doing, Tirth? I'm good. I'm good. Reporting live from New Orleans. Ironically, I live here now. Uh, I said I never want to go back to the South, but I'm going to be here for at least two more years. So there's, there's some irony in your life. How is the Big Easy? What's going on down there? Uh, it, it's cool. Um, it's ironic because as soon as we got here, there was the huge um, flooding in Baton Rouge, so it felt um, it felt almost like we brought like a bad omen with us. So that wasn't a good thing. But um, I mean, New Orleans is definitely like very, very interesting, very, very different. And so, getting used to life here has been uh, a cool and fun uh, learning process overall. Imagining you in Louisiana is uh, is a foreign thought to me, but uh, I'm I'm glad to hear you're enjoying it. But um, I, I, I guess we'll just start off. I want to get your thoughts on the debate. Um, what did you think of it? How have you processed it? I don't know if you watched a lot or just highlights or just give us give us uh, what you your, your thoughts on it so far. For sure. Um, so I actually ended up watching a lot, I think most of it, because my roommates had it on in the living room. And I originally wasn't planning on watching a lot of it because I had a bad feeling about what I thought it was going to be and how accurate that might actually end up being to what it was. Um, and so when I was watching it, uh, you notice a lot of the stuff I had. Like, so some, some of the predisposed fears I had were that this wasn't going to be a debate. It was going to be a lot of like just kind of name-calling stuff where Trump would initiate some random comment about, you know, emails or Benghazi or uh, President Obama's birth certificate or whatever you can think of that he's talked about in the past. Um, and and that, that Hillary would have to, in a serious manner, respond to that. Otherwise, she'd be chastised by the media and other people. And which you did see a lot of, uh, but I think Hillary's gotten a lot better at deflecting those things by just throwing facts at this guy who clearly doesn't really have an analytical side of his brain. Um, and so I think that was very interesting. Like, Trump would say something... Uh, he, he would say, we need stop and frisk. And then the moderator would say, you know, stop and frisk was deep unconstitutional <laughs> under this case. And then uh, Hillary would say, yeah, I don't think, you know, due to that fact, we should go with stop and frisk. We should try other strategies. We should do community-based things. And then Trump was like, no, we need stop and frisk. And then she'd be like, but it's unconstitutional. And that would keep going. So I kind of expected something like that. The fact that this actually happened and, and it was a recorded you know, debate, one of the three presidential debates, like, it blew my mind on a lot of levels, um, but I think it speaks volumes to the fact that, like, one, I haven't cared about the political process in, like, a, in, like, a month, because I've just become so, like, uh, almost numb by the Trump talk, like, Trump is, like, drowned on everything as far as, like, reason, or, like, talking about policy, or anything that matters when it comes to politics, and so... It's made it kind of hard to keep up with things and really want to care because every time you just hear a story about something stupid he said, which I really don't care about. Um, and so uh, based off of that, the fact that I hadn't been paying attention for a month, this is the first instance of like political you know, media or something that I consumed in that length of time, I think was very interesting on a lot of levels. But I think also just you know confirms the fact that this has been a very, very weird like year and a half to two years of uh, federal level presidential politics. And so, yeah, that was, those, those are my thoughts. Yeah, I would. Uh, I tend to agree with most of the things you're saying, um, except you know I am very much invested in this type of thing. I, I don't know if you know I'm teaching a class on the presidency now uh, to undergrads, so That's awesome. we've been talking about this like every day. Um, so and anyway, is I'm obsessed with it anyway. Like I check the five thirty eight model like almost hourly because <laughs> I want to believe it's not true right now, but it's. Just, it, I'm getting scared. Um, but yeah, I thought the debate, I thought the debate went really well for Hillary. Um, just, and, and it's not a difficult task necessarily. Just making Donald Trump look stupid is not something that I, I, I'm fairly convinced I could get up on a debate stage and do reasonably well against him. And that's not to take, take away anything from Clinton. I thought Clinton did an exceptional job, um, with her performance, but not, Donald gets trapped in so many things where he, like, you just, you can just insult him about, like, make a minor insult to him, and he will go on and on and on and try to justify why he did what he did. Or, like, I, I think insult's the wrong word there. You can bring up, like, a personal issue with him, and he, he will just go on about, like, for example, this was after the debate, but CNN 
was like, uh, or he was in an interview with CNN, I think. It, it might have been a different uh, corporation. I forget which where I was watching this. Where they were basically like, you were noticeably sick. Like, how are you feeling now? And he just completely denied that he was sick and tried to say, like, oh, I wasn't sick. Like, he blamed things like the microphone being defective and <laughs> things like that instead of just being like, oh, you know, I was sick. So you can get him hung up on these things where he will just talk and talk and talk about irrelevant uh, things that make him look bad instead of deflecting them. Like Hillary had a one-sentence response on the emails, and then it wasn't even talked about the rest of the debate. Like Trump didn't hammer her on it. Um, I don't think Holt felt the need to jump in after the initial email question, um, and that's kind of Trump's job to do that. So. It, w it was interesting watching him try to defend, like, not paying taxes and things like that, which are just known as universally bad. I would think he would just be trying to deflect those types of things. So, um, I, I don't know. I, I think it was a win for Clinton, and I don't know how much that will affect the polls, especially this year. I, I, I'm kind of two-sided on this. Like, one, this year has been completely ridiculous, and all conventional wisdom has gone out the window. So it could be Clinton did well and she loses voters or something. So that I, that could somehow happen. Or this is a year with a ton of undecided voters. So the debates could actually mean more than they have in the past. So it could go one of two ways. Uh, but th those are my general thoughts. I wanted to specifically talk to you about some of the issues in the debates, though. I, I know you're... Or, from going to school with you in the past, we were both in the economics program at UNC and we took the development economics class together in which we kind of talked about free trade a decent amount. I was, I was wondering what your perspective is on the TPP. That's been a, you know, both presidential candidates have come out against that. And I was wondering, you know, what your thoughts were and, um, you know, just talk about that issue a little bit. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, free trade, uh, like kind of like what we talked about in that class, the way it's modeled or the way it was modeled in that class, I think makes a lot of sense if the state of the world was such that, you know, countries had similar uh, industries in terms of where they were in their life cycles, and then they made the decision whether or not to, you know, take free trade. I think based off that, the value in free trade is tremendous. If you have, you know, almost, like, almost homogenous across the board in terms of like, you know, this industry has existed in this country for X amount of years and has also existed in this country for X amount of years, and there's no inherent advantage that one side poses the other. If that's the case, then yeah, I think free trade's a good thing, um, but I think a lot of times you end up with the case, you know, that that is not true, that there are a lot of industries, um, especially for developing countries where they're trying to develop them and, and build those industries up to create jobs and wealth that stays within their country's borders and domestically can hopefully prosper over time. And so... When that happens, I think there is a large case to go more towards an ordo liberal system, uh, which, you know, like that sounds like a big word, but really just kind of the economic system that uh, Alexander Hamilton, ironically, with the, the play being so popular, he, he was a huge proponent of it. Um, and the system was basically used by Japan and Germany, as we learned in the economic development class that we took, uh, to, to industrialize much, much faster than other, you know, I would say like developed or, uh, you know, like just, just basic countries that are already gotten to the full point of industrialization, they had done it in a much shorter amount of time, much more efficiently. Um, and, and the way they did that was by focusing on the, you know, growing out the middle, so essentially focusing on the middle class and making sure that many people have access to programs that keep them, um, you know, well in terms of health and, you know, financial status and access to resources. And then also on an industry level targeting the growth of technology industries, um, which also tended to focus on government having to work with the private sector to build valuable infrastructure. And when those relationships on all three of those levels played out well, those countries saw tremendous economic growth. And it makes a lot of sense on a lot of levels because one, technologies, um, you know, once they get to a certain scale, tend to become a public good. Think about Google and the search engine. Think about, you know, other things that have gotten tremendously cheap, like just software or solar cells in recent years or all sorts of stuff throughout history. Um, and then also the fact that you want to take care of people because if you want them to have good ideas and focus on doing work well, they need to have proper health and, and access to resources that would make sure they can focus on their work. Um, because if you have to constantly worry about, hey, I'm paying a crap ton of money for healthcare, like that's very hard to actually do that while simultaneously paying attention and doing a good job at, at your work. 
Um, and so I think that's that's my two views on it, is that, you know, if we were in a situation where we're dealing with two countries that are pretty homogenous, like the U.S. and Canada, I think free trade would be a good thing. Um, but if it's the U.S. and India, uh, you know, I would say if I'm India, I don't want to necessarily en- engage in a free trade, um, you know, discussion with the U.S. or with other developed countries, because I'm probably going to lose out on some high-tech sectors like computing or renewable energy or otherwise. So from a presidential candidate's perspective, if you're... Say you're just dealing with being the United States in this case. It sounds like you would generally support the TPP under that assumption. Like you, you think it's better for the developed countries than the developing country or the the less developed countries. Is that correct? Uh, I would say in most circumstances, yes. But I think if, if I'm the presidential candidate, right, then it kind of changes in terms of like who I'm trying to appeal to. If if, if I'm losing out on a voter base that is largely in uh, labor-intensive industries like coal mining, or uh, you know, many you know, U.S. domestic manufacturing, or all sorts of other service and industrial-based jobs, then it's probably the case that I'm not for the TPP because you know, in, in that sense, labor is always going to be cheaper in those countries that are developing. For the most part, that's held true um, for the large part of the last you know 50, 60 years in terms of globalization. And so, if that's the case, then I'm not for it. Um, but in terms of what I think would provide the most value, I think it is that. Granted, you know, if, if value is just economic growth, if, if value is something else like economic equity or something else, then, you know, I could argue a, a different side, which I probably do know myself. So. <laughs> no, I, I have similar thoughts. I'm personally, I believe the TPP is best, is the best decision for our country. But I recognize as a presidential candidate, those labor intensive manufacturing jobs that would be most affected by it probably are heavily concentrated in swing states. If you look, you look at the Rust Belt areas like that. So I can totally understand um, why both candidates would come out against it. I thought you made a nuanced view, or you gave a nuanced view on that. You pretty much took everything I was going to say. Uh, so thanks for that. But yeah, I I think. I think the the way organized interest is set up is interesting when uh, talking about free trade because free trade benefits everyone a little bit, but hurts. But the the concentration of the people it hurts is it's concentrated among a small amount of people who have a loud voice on the topic. So it's kind of like how. I'm trying to find a good corollary to this, but just interest group-wise, you would expect the groups that are against free trade to speak out much louder than the groups that are for it because it greatly affects people within those industries and it just like marginally affects all of us in society. Yeah, I I would tend to agree. Uh, The the one caveat I would add to that is that in this particular case, it's usually the case I would agree that like a special interest group would want to be louder or would hope to be louder if they're the one that is, you know, more negatively affected by a decision on a policy level. But the one thing is here is that, you, you, or I tend to notice, um, and, and I think I've seen data that confirms this, I'm, I'm not going to say off the top of my head because I don't have, like, you know, reference or something, but uh, what I've noticed is that a lot of the people who tend to be hurt by the TUP who work in these industries that we talked about tend to be in rural areas in a lot of these swing states, in Pennsylvania, and West Virginia, um, you know, even places like Florida sometimes and Texas where they have manufacturing hubs, uh, but they tend to be in places like El, Pas- El Paso or uh, somewhere else that isn't directly like a part of a huge metropolitan center. So they tend to be like rural white working class people a lot of times or Hispanic or African-American otherwise. But uh, I would say a lot of people who are loudly against TPP are generally going to be a part of that rural population. And so for them, I would say they want they should be the loudest. But ironically, I don't think they have that lot of a voice because I don't know too many of those people who are, you know, going to have the ability or the resources to organize either a lobby group or a huge concerted national effort to really make their voices heard. The closest thing I can think of is the the Fight 15, but ironically, that's been very, very concentrated in the food and services industry. And for a, a reason, they consider there's a much likelier chance they can unionize as opposed to industry in manufacturing, which has kind of lost that ability um, due to automation and all sorts of other stuff. Um, but yeah, that's that's the one caveat that, I, that should happen, but I'm not sure it will happen. Mm-hmm. And you bring up the fight for fifteen. Might as well talk about that while we're uh, while we're on the topic. Um, what are your current thoughts on the fight for fifteen? I 
I haven't talked to you about this issue in a long time. I I recently read a study that came out. I think it was in Seattle where they enacted the fifteen dollar minimum wage, and they found the economic effects for low wage workers to be almost neutral. Like they they obviously received a higher base pay, but they also had their hours cut uh, on average. So I'm generally a person who is for raising the minimum wage, not necessarily believing that it should be 15 specifically. I I think depending on the area you're in, it could be higher or lower because, you know, cost of living and such, like $15 in Alabama is worth a hell of a lot more than $15 in Los Angeles. So uh, give me your perspective on what's going on with that right now. I I would say it would tend to be very similar on a lot of levels, uh, but for like the most part, I've kind of come to this conclusion that a lot of these uh, policy mechanisms, like the minimum wage, uh, they can, they can definitely work, but they need to be they need to be like basically deployed on a very geographically specific level. So, like you said, like cities um, versus just Alabama in general. So, I, like I'm not necessarily for a federal minimum wage, um, in, in some cases, uh, because I do think cities being generally more liberal and only for this instance liberal being probably more likely to pass a minimum wage are probably able to get that done whereas for the wide majority of like rural parts of Alabama outside of like Birmingham and whatever other major metros exist they probably don't necessarily need a $15 minimum wage it may even in fact hurt them in some cases um, but I think in general the $15 minimum wage and the 515 point to the fact that I think states um, are a very how do I phrase this like almost an unneeded part of our government. Like I, I think, uh, like I, I, I think, I think in, in a lot of ways, like states are very arbitrary. Like, like there's not any reason the lines were drawn the way they were outside of just like you know political arguments with uh, you know Native American groups uh, and you know other countries that have tried to uh, colonize the you know continental United States. And so I think outside of those being any reasons why a state should exist, I think most stuff should be split up in terms of. Uh, metropolitan areas and non-metropolitan areas um, because I think those two people and, and the, the best example I can give you is my home state of Illinois where um, in the very the northern tip and the southern tip where southern tip being St. Louis metropolitan area the northern tip being um, Chicago land of course both those areas have very different needs than the rest of the middle of the state does and, and like I've had my, my dad had to work there for a couple of years while he was uh, doing contract work for software development and stuff like that in different companies and, and, the, and the people's lives there are very different. Their needs are very different. And I don't think both those things are going to be equally represented. I think it, in a state government, and I think it puts a lot of bad incentives out for doing things like gerrymandering and stuff. It's really not needed. Like, honestly, if you just split them up into two separate local governments, uh, kind of similar to what state levels is now, but just separate, you could probably serve those people a lot more effectively and efficiently than having them both be a part of the same pot of people, essentially. That's interesting. I'm just trying to envision what this would look like because, you know, the quote unquote American ideal or American dream or whatever views America as if it's like this melting pot in which people, you know, associate with all different kinds of people, no matter where they're from, et cetera, et cetera. And I think if anything, which this is something I kind of already suspected and knew, but this presidential election has shown us how divided this country really is between people who generally live in cities and versus people who do not. Um, So how would you envision these subnational governments working that I, I don't mean to belabor the point, but how would you envision these? I'm trying to think Um, what, would you completely redraw state lines, get rid of states entirely? Uh, how do you, how would jurisdiction work? Yeah. So, I mean, there was a really good New York times article that I'll, uh, that we can ask Raj to put in the show notes of this podcast. Um, but it kind of explained this idea to some extent of how it would work. And the way they kind of said was it would essentially replace what states currently are, just divide them up into even smaller states, but they'd be very focused on the areas that are representative of similar types of populations with similar needs. Um, and so I think it, I think it would just be bigger counties, you know, for lack of a better way to have an example to explain it. Like whatever counties currently exist, you, you know, like I, I live in Cook County, for example, back home uh, in Chicago, and it's the second 
most populated county in the country with 5.5 million people. And, and, and the counties surrounding that tend to be kind of similar in terms of like their needs, the fact that it's very urbanized. But if you were to go out to a southern county or, or a more southern county in the state, like it's very, very different. But like if you took a bunch of these counties and just, you know, in their current state and compile them into those that are very similar in terms of how urbanized they are, um, you know, other population demographic characteristics, things like that, that you think would be important, and you put them into one uh, bigger group, I think you just get smaller substates. And so I don't think much changes outside of the fact that there's the local politics is more effective at what it does. And, you know, it, like because right now what, it ends, what ends up happening is that states, uh, as they're currently constructed, have a lot of power. Um, to, to, you know, basically toggle against the federal government. But a lot of times they don't really use that power to make the lives of the people in their states better. They just kind of use it as a holding place for things like party structures, ideologies, mm-hmm. you know, like, like you, you know, even the state went to school in North Carolina. If you look at the demographics, a lot of people don't really, like, it's, it's almost a 50-50 split, if not slightly more democratic in that state now, um, in terms of people who side with what uh, the governor there uh, um uh, McRory has done and what he hasn't done, and but the fact is that he's still holding fast on that because he's the governor and he has so much power over how state politics work. And so I think you know if, if you were to dissipate that power into like people who live in like Boone, North Carolina versus like Charlotte, like you you could solve a lot of these problems and, and serve both populations better. And it, it shouldn't be too hard. That's true, but to play devil's advocate, what happens? For example, if you separate out Boone, North Carolina, what happens to, like, I don't know, the minority groups that live there? Like, Mm -hmm. these, if they're not, if you don't have other, if you don't have other, like, populations mixing with each other, you could end up with some really bad places to be a certain, well, I guess that exists now, if you look at the deep Yeah, I was just going to counter with that, is that it tends to be... Pretty demographically split. Not entirely, of course. Like, it's not like the only people that live in rural communities are white. It also tends to be fairly Hispanic, fairly African-American in some places. But I would say if you are a minority that tends to be uh, intersectionalized with, like, the lower class because of all sorts of stuff, you tend to live in cities more so than outside of cities. And that just happens to be the case because... Living in those rural communities, one, there's not a lot of economic opportunity there as it is. And, you know, if you're an immigrant, um, and even, like, for example, a lot of African-American families, when they moved to the north during the Great Migration, they basically were immigrants because they were moving out of essentially what was a different country in the south to the north. Uh-huh. And so um, I think they face similar incentives and needs in terms of seeking economic growth. And the thing is, rural, you know, communities usually cannot offer that. What do you see as the ca- the, the causal pathway with that? Do you see people who generally have a desire i don't know to like who have more progressive views moving into cities or do you think that people people's uh, geographic area generally determines what their views are i think i think it could be both i think in a, in a rural area for sure like your geographical area if you were to not leave that area would definitely have a higher weight um than, you know, some other factors in terms of what your political views are, what your views are on religion, other things in in that realm of of decisions that people make about themselves throughout their lives. And then in a city, you know, you could already be liberal, like you said, or more liberal leaning and therefore be attracted to the city. But I think a lot of times, um, probably what initially happens, especially if like, let's say you're talking about an immigrant family, you could not be very liberal at all. But once you get to the city, because you're interacting with so many different types of people, your usage of public goods, such as parks, libraries, community centers, goes up so much more um, than it does in a rural community, I would say, because rural communities tend to not have a lot of those things because they don't have a, a mass of people to get them. Um, that You tend to have other ideas or at least have to interact with them than you otherwise wouldn't. Whereas a rural community, I think, because of, like I said, has less resources on a public good level, tends to not have as many of those interactions taking place. So I would say it's a mix of both, but I think geography, like you kind of, I think, hinted at, does have a pretty big impact on how you think. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that, especially with my experiences uh, coming from a rural community and then <laughs> eventually living on two different college campuses, now living in a minor minor city now. Uh yeah, I can basically see basically a suburb of Detroit to some extent. Yeah, I I wouldn't call it a suburb of Detroit though. Like it's it's hard to explain. Like it's definitely disconnected from what's going on in Detroit generally. Yeah, yeah. 
Like, there are suburbs of Detroit that are, like, rich areas and things like, like, rich, quote-unquote, rich suburbs of Detroit. Um, and, but this is more, it's more of its, like, its own city, if that makes yeah. sense. Like, not big enough to be a real major city, but, yeah. uh, like, my friend, my friend from New York complains about it because there's not enough stuff to do or anything like that. But, yeah. It seems like there's everything to do from my perspective because I lived in Chapel Hill and, and uh, <laughs> a rural area before this. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's your perspective on that. Um, I That was a good discussion, though. I want to change gears a little bit. Uh, we haven't done one of these in a while, and I feel like we missed out on a whole lot not getting on the uh, Kaepernick stuff as it was going on. Oh, yeah. Uh, are you as frustrated as I am with certain things you've been seeing from people it's uh, to me i i could talk about this for hours but i am just so tired of people value like valuing symbolism over like people's lives i i it, it boggles my damn mind and i can't get i honestly can't get over it i'm sure you have a similar opinion but uh i don't know provide some nuance I would say this actually is, is more related to our last talking point than you would think about, right? Because, like, I think if you were to, to filter out the, the data set of people who are, you know, understanding, if not pro, Ka what Kaepernick is doing, to those who are, at, at the very least, not understanding to anti what Kaepernick is doing, they tend to be separated probably, if not by geographies, then definitely, you know, subset of ideologies, either being conservative, liberal, religious, non-religious, whatever you want to do, they tend to filter out that way is my guess. I haven't done this actually, but that, that, that's what I'm guessing based off of previous interactions with Black Lives Matter in the media and what response that has gotten from certain groups versus others. Um, and so my point, I think, is kind of like one of the things I've learned from like the last year and a half of watching this political process is how impossibly difficult it is and people blame this on social media and the internet. I don't think this, that's, I mean, I think that plays a part, but much smaller of a part than we tend to give it credit for is that it's really damn hard to convince people that what they're saying or doing, you know, is either not optimal, wrong, or just like not the best thing to do. It, like it, it, it to me is like something when like, if, if you were to tell me, Hey, go convince this person that they need to even like use a different flour in their cooking. I'd be like, you know what? I think I'm going to like pass. Like, I don't care if you're offering me like a hundred thousand bucks. Like I'd rather just not do it. It sounds horrible. Um, because like, it's so insanely hard. Like human beings are so hardwired, you know, probably for a host of, you know, neurobiological reasons or just like social stuff, um, to care about what they care about and, and to really hold fast to it. And, and even if, even if it's in their worst interest to do so, right? Like, you know, take rural communities who vote for guys who don't give a shit about building infrastructure. Like, that's the biggest irony we face in our political process, that people who support people they do often are misaligned in their interests, their needs, and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I think the similar thing is happening here with, with the, the case of Colin Kaepernick, is that, ironically, people don't see the parallels between the 1960s and what's happening now, is that, you know, the, the same people that were, like, against Muhammad Ali and, and all the track athletes and the people who took a stand during the Olympics on the big stages as black athletes to talk about race and talk about what's happening in the country in that moment, they were like, oh, well, that's not the right place to do it. And they said all the same stuff back then. But now we look at those people who said those things, like, they were idiots. Like, these people were clearly suffering, were going through a huge injustice, and we were, like, just going to let it happen because we were not taking the time to listen to what they had to say or, like, even think outside of what we normally interact with in terms of the people we talk to. No, and I so I think... History repeats itself in that sense. I completely agree. And I, it just boggles the mind how people will sit there and, like, criticize Black Lives Matter and be like, you have to protest peacefully. And then someone protests peacefully and you're going to get up in their face about it? Like, <laughs> seriously? Like, yeah. I, I read an article today. It was like, this bar is using, in Virginia, is using... Colin Kaepernick's jersey as a doormat or something, which is like, I hate the state of Virginia anyway. Like every time I I, I frequent I ninety five in Virginia going back, or at least I did this summer going from Maryland to uh, North Carolina, and it's like you drive through that state, you got to see that they have the Confederate flag flying over ninety five there, like a giant one. And Ironically, like, the same it, state that contains a part of DC. <laughs> yeah, true, but also it's like 
the, the same people who were mad at Kaepernick, a lot of them, at least in the South, I wouldn't say that, you know, in other parts of the country other than the South, but it's probably going to be a lot of the same people that support flying the Confederate flag, which is, like, actually just an insult to the real flag. Like, you want to talk insult, like, that was an armed rebellion against the flag. Like, that's actually against the flag. And I, I, that's generally not disputable. I mean, that's just the way it is. But I think people often think their conception of the flag is everyone's conception of the flag. And I think that's where, like, I was arguing with my dad about this, which he was surprisingly, what he said, like, of course he supports what Collins Collins motives but he was like I I don't think you should disrespect the flag and I I was taken aback by it and he was just saying like the flag I don't think the flag represents our military but it represents our country and our country is great and all this stuff and it I, I just said to him and I'll say this now like your conception of the flag is not everyone else's conception of it like if you believe it if you believe it represents the military that's fine you can believe that if you believe it represents our country you can believe that but you might want to like i don't know maybe talk to a person of color or a native american maybe you should see what they think about the flag like that that would be a great person to talk to because i don't think they're gonna think the american flag means all these great things given the level of oppression they've faced under those stars and stripes so to me um i i think people should just accept these national symbols are like they don't have inherent meaning they they get their meaning from what we ascribe to them they so i think you just have to recognize that the same flag that represents this to you doesn't represent this to someone else and that's the way it is i I, I didn't I don't see the controversy over it. Well, I understand why there's controversy. I just think it's silly and misplaced. But Yeah. I, I, I think uh, eloquently stated on a lot of levels and I think one of the points it's like really you know, you, you, you talked a, a bit about but like to target a little bit more on that is like our definition of patriotism. Like in, in America and, and this exists to some extent in every country, but it I would say exists almost at like a hyper like awareness level of like you know, patriotism means a few things. It means like caring about some certain holidays, you know, caring about the flag and respecting the flag, the national anthem, other symbols. But it actually doesn't mean a lot of what those people who probably, and, you know, like right, this, this, there's a whole other bunch of points I can bring up. But let's just say you thought that these things were created under a circumstance which was, you know, a positive one in which people who made the national anthem or the flag had good intentions of trying to invoke. Uh, you know, positive behavior or positive thoughts around our country. If that was the case, where is like the unpatriotic thing in saying, I think the country has XYZ problems. I think we should solve them. Therefore, I'm going to currently protest in this manner until we fix them. That's not saying that like this country is mine and therefore you have to atone to whatever the hell I'm specifically saying. The person's like using this symbol as what it's meant to be. Is that like, okay, the symbol means, like you said, whatever we ascribe it to be. Um, and in this case, when certain things aren't working in our country, it should mean that, hey, we need to work on stuff. And like, I think, you know, like patriotism in our country, largely due to like commercialization, like a lot of other things has turned into like, who can yell the loudest? Who can like, you know, like a, a mimic a freaking like beer commercial the most. And it's like, dude, none of those things matter for shit when it comes to patriotism. They don't mean anything. And so, like you said, I think, I think it's very misplaced. I think, it, I think it has to do with, like, the geography thing we talked about earlier. I, I completely agree with that. And there's also, like, a large part of patriotism that is now, like, intertwined with fragile masculinity. Like, I don't yeah. I don't know how much you've noticed that, but it's like, if you don't, if you don't support the flag, you're not a man, like, you know, all that, like, bullshit. And it, it, yeah. it's just, it's, it's bothering to me. Like, you need to consider that, this flag represents oppression to a lot of people. And, and uh, I don't know. I I personally, like, I, I got an argument with my dad, like, about burning the flag, too. And he was like, I think it's the worst thing anyone can do, like, all this stuff. And I, I, per I said, I personally wouldn't do it, but I can understand why, if you are upset that pe your people are being killed, why you might consider doing that. It's a yeah. flag. Like, it's not a person. Yeah.
But yeah, I, I don't want to belabor that point too much, but it's just something that's gotten me fired up over the past few weeks. And I wish we had had a podcast to, before this to really get going on it while it was in uh, in full swing. But I think my final word on that is if you if you're not a person of color and you are and you are speaking out against someone protesting the flag, you should look at the opinions of other people of color before you do that. Because I haven't heard, and this, I may have a bias sample, but I've heard plenty of white athletes stand up and say, like, this is wrong and this is bad. I haven't heard a single black athlete. Like, they might say they're not going to do it personally, but they still support the notion. And I think that's important. Like, you need to listen to voices of other cultures before you just, like, say, you know, all of these people are wrong. And you look at how the protest itself has, like, caught fire in a way. It's everywhere you see it now. And High schools as well. Yeah, maybe you should possibly consider that these people have a different experience than you do with America and with the flag and what they believe. And you should respect that difference. And that, that's all I'm saying. Like, and I, I've heard a lot of people who have been like, you're disrespecting the military by doing that. They're not speaking out against the military. Like, they're not saying anything bad against the military. You have to look at the intentions of what they're doing, not just, like, it's just people using the military to make people feel bad about, the, and about themselves and feel like their oppression isn't validated. So, yeah. And at one point, this is kind of off topic, but, like, it's related. So, like, let's say you're someone who's, like, super logical and you think of yourself as, like, a very rational person, always making decisions outside of emotions or anything else and only off of just pure logic. Okay, well, then, economics can ironically teach you something about empathy in this case. Think about it from this perspective. Let's say you didn't care about any of the meanings described in any of these symbols. Let's just say... That you understood that because other people care about the flag, even if you don't, let's say the wide collective majority of our country does in some way, whether it's good or bad, has some symbolization of the flag, then by doing something wrong to the flag, you're probably going to, you know, basically uh, inherit some risk by doing that. Like, like you're, you're going to add more risk to your life. Now, like, if, if, you, if you're someone who's, you know, very traditionally patriotic in the way we talked about earlier, and you see someone desecrating the flag or doing something to the national anthem, why not stop and think about, okay, if you care about the flag this much and you think it matters this much to the country, wouldn't it mean that the reason behind why someone is doing this is all the more worse or negative than the backlash they're going to face for doing it? them like like that has to like like if you think about it that way it has to like you know reveal to you that whatever they're facing is probably at least pretty significant to them if not a you know group they're a part of or someone else they have something in common with but if someone's gonna you know be pretty willing to take on that risk day to day and have all this bad shit said about them and get death threats and all sorts of other stuff they're probably doing it for a very real reason not something about being you know about a part of pc culture or being very sensitive or some other bullshit whatever the hell people uh, ascribe you know protest to but yeah, and it's that's another thing they want to say like PC culture that people will speak out and say like oh PC culture you get offended by so many things yet they're offended by <laughs> exactly <laughs> how how much hypocrisy is in that statement like yeah. we're offended when and again like when I say offended I mean I largely mean like we wish you would just change your behavior to not be a dick. But basically, we're offended when you use language that's, like, denigrating to people who are in underprivileged or minority groups and, or, you know, LGBT, etc., etc. And when they ascribe us to being, like, pissed off about everything everyone said, like, no, that's not the way it is. We are... Just be, just don't be a dick like that. I, I said that in the last podcast too. Like yeah. PC culture is about not being a dick to people. At least that's yeah. the way I feel it is. And you look at things like House Bill Two and stuff like that. Like if there was one way to describe what House Bill Two came out of, it was just trying to be a dick. Like there's yeah. no way to to get around that. Like it was Pat McCrory and the North Carolina GOP just trying to stir up things for no reason. And 
just bothers me that people ascribe those ideas as PC culture and things like that. When it, it's just like trying to make society a more accommodating place for people to be in. I don't know how you feel about that, but. No, I, I would tend to agree. I kind of think of, you know, political correctness, if that's, you know, what we want to call it, because I actually freaking hate that name for it. It bothers the lot of me, but, um, because I don't really think it's political at all. I think it's social, uh, and I and like I think political means something else. Like you have a motive behind what you're doing to like win something or to gain some kind of power. I don't think anyone gives a shit about that when you're telling someone to do the right thing. I think the way, like you kind of said, is like don't be a dick. I think another way to put that is uh, do no harm. You know, at the very least, we're not asking you to be a superhero and to always like save the world and and to like do everything you possibly can in every you know moment morally correctly but at least give the damn effort to not do anything negative right like you know like you, it doesn't matter if you don't want to do something positive for the world i have a lot of friends who don't give a crap about that and like i don't necessarily think any less of them as human beings for not wanting to but at the very least don't negatively add to whatever the hell you know bad things we have that are occurring whether it be you know inequality economically or oppression like and you can do that in a pretty simple way by just not using words which like if those words really matter that much to your life like fine use them but like i guarantee you they don't like you probably use them very like you know like infrequently in your life but they probably don't mean shit to you like in reality because you're gonna get in this huge argument about like hey why are you telling me to politically correct and it's like dude like you not saying this word has a huge positive impact if we can get everyone to not do it and by you wanting to do this so badly like the only thing you get is the ability to say it where other people don't want you to say it like that's so stupid <laughs> completely agree and again you i'll take this back to house bill too it's like there are already laws in place which prevent people from doing like illegal things in bathrooms like if something were to happen like th there are laws in place you did not make it any more likely by passing this law that you're gonna catch anyone doing something illegal in a bathroom yeah, no, and it's such a farce in the sense that, ironically, right, like, there's no data to support that transgender people have been involved in rape cases, especially in, in the location of bathrooms, but in rape cases in general. Like, you know, they, they brought that out when HB2 came out. Like, they were like, let's dig up all the information we can on how many rape cases have occurred with transgender people, you know, raping someone of the opposite sex that they identify with. Um, and, like, that has, you know, to my knowledge, according to the data, not really occurred in a significant way. But, ironically, if you really cared about the problem of rape, right, like, it happens all the time on college campuses. We've had numerous cases in the last couple of months where people have gotten away with it, yet these same people don't speak out as vehemently against this person, even though we have proof that it happened. The court said you're guilty, but the court gave the person a very, you know, lenient sentence because they were like, eh, we don't think it's a big deal. But at that moment, you really care about rape. And that kind of goes to show that, like, the problem of rape is not what you're fighting for. It's, like, just some random belief you have about why the world is changing or why certain things are not more visible and you don't like it. Like, that's, like, I mean, I get it because conservatism, uh, conservatism makes sense on a lot of levels. But it's also, like, unruly stupid in a lot of ways. Like, you're, you know, making someone else's life harder for very little, if, like, none positive benefit you get out of that. Like, like. Your life doesn't improve at all if transgender people can't have their rights. Like, what do you get out of it? I mean, I don't know. Amen, so, I mean, man. And I, I think you make a good point. I'm, I'm trying to think of, of doing a long piece on this, but I, I think this election, and this connects to what you're saying, has, to tie it back to the election, uh, has kind of proven that this is like the white man's last, the old white man's last stand. Like, the, the the world is changing around the the older white male population. They're uncomfortable with it. Like they weren't uncomfortable enough with it in 2012 to where they would just nominate a buffoon <laughs> like they did this year. Like Mitt Romney, obviously problematic in some areas, <laughs> but I I would feel legitimately comfortable with Mitt Romney leading our country at least in most respects. Yeah. Um, he was a legitimate candidate, even though he had a lot of problems in, in my view, but we, we could talk about that forever. But this is like this. It seems just like a Supreme reaction. Everything that came from like mad world news and info wars and Breitbart from the past, like, which is again, ironic because 
I can't believe I'm saying this, but, <laughs> you know, the, the leader of Breitbart is now one of Trump's campaign managers. It, it's just too, per like, the leader of a fake news website is leading a major party's presidential campaign. You can't make this stuff up. I, I, I think it's just an explosion of these people, mostly older white males, but also, I, you know, it could be ascribed to a lot of the white population, just feel as though their country is leaving them. And it's because of uh, things like, it's because of silly things like Starbucks taking Christmas off of cups and like transgender people and gay people getting rights and things like that. And they feel as though like, I just don't understand where it personally affects you very much that like the world is becoming more inclusive. Like why on a, on like an individual day to day level, why are you mad that people are like able to live the lives they want? Are you somehow jealous? Like, do you, do you miss a time when you were dominant over minorities and you want to go back to that? And you, you feel some sense of loss that now, you know, minority groups have caught up to you and are, you know, for a lot of the low income white population are that I, I think they're very uncomfortable that they see, you know, black men, black women, even white women in positions of power, and they're very jealous, and they're not used to this, and this is their last stand. So that that's my general way to tie this election to what I see in our culture. But um, I don't know if you agree with that or um what well, how would you tie this election to everything we're seeing in, in our culture yeah, I, I would say it follows a global trend so let, let's like zoom out of it right let, let's look at our country right like with uh, the trump phenomenon and, and like you know whatever the hell you want to call the extreme right wing which you know some people are giving it the name the alt right which sounds a bit too friendly for an extremist movement in my uh terms, it's but sure <laughs> To be but honest, when I hear it, I think of, like, alternative rock. Yeah, like, <laughs> I think of, like, crazy people, which they are crazy people, because these are the same people who took endorsements from David well, Duke, who's a freaking former leader of the KKK, which is a terrorist organization. No, like, like I'm what? saying, I'm saying when I hear it, I think, like, alternative rock, like, yeah. Lincoln Park, and <laughs> it's like, like, old alternative rock bands, like, Stained. That's yeah. like them. And, and it's like, but, but so if, if you zoom out, it's like the U.S. has had this movement, right? Uh, we just saw how, you know, prior to this election really ramping up, what happened in England with Brexit and how, ironically, after they voted for the Brexit vote, Google search tracked all the, the, vote, the, the searches of what is the European Union, what is Brexit, and many people didn't know what they were voting for and then regretted after the fact now it seems like Brexit's not really going to happen, at least in the way it originally was planned to happen, uh, if at all. Um, and then you saw movements with Marie Le Pen in France, um, you've seen uh, a real big backlash to uh, Mer uh, Merkel um, to in Germany, and, and you've seen movements across the, the Middle East, of course, with a lot of people who have taken power after the vaccine left by um, the Arab Spring, you've seen this in India with Modi, um, like a lot of religious right-wing extremist movements that are filled with people who, you know, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, because I know every person who hates political correctness is going to think that I'm being politically correct, but these people had privilege, is what they had, uh, either racial, religious, in some other sense, over another group, and now they're saying that, okay, we're leveling the playing field for people to live their lives in a pretty equitable way, or trying to do that, and they're, you know, uh, you know, reaching out with some backlash because they feel like this takes away from their rights. It doesn't take away from your rights. It takes away from your privilege. Like, that is true. Like, yeah, like, you as a white male in America are going to have less privilege over time, which is a good thing for everybody, including you, ironically. But it's hard to convince someone of that because, you know, they, they feel they're being attacked. And so I've seen the same thing in my family, uh, which happens to come from a pretty conservative side of India, do the same thing with Modi. Like, Modi's done some messed up stuff to minority groups or has been silent in what's happened to a lot of minority groups in India, for a lot of the same ways uh, that things are happening here. And uh, my family's like supporter. I've had to get in so many fights with my uncles, even my parents sometimes about this, because the dude is from the state that a lot of uh, South Asian, uh, especially Indian immigrants in America are from, uh, Club yeah, Kadras. What, what happened with him? Because I thought you were originally in support of him, right? Or no? I, I was naive. Like I, I wow. did. I, I, I like. I liked his economic policies and the fact that he was aggressive in terms of developing domestic technology, which I still like. But in terms of his 
Um, like the fact that he, okay, so he's a part of the Hindu Nationalist Party, which is the equivalent of like if we had a, 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 a you know, like if the Republican Party went full uh, evangelical Christian, like that's essentially what that party is in India. So Ted um, Cruz. What's up? Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz. Yeah, like basically, like like I, I would say he, uh, you know, is a little bit more of like a wolf in sheep's clothing than Ted Cruz. He isn't like as outright like fuck these people as you know Ted Cruz is, but he definitely says a lot of messed up stuff. He definitely supports a lot of people who are okay with messed up stuff happening. Um, and so, like in that sense, I'm against him. Like we can get economic development from some other guy, but you know we've got to have an equitable country that's you know open to the. the both uh, cultural, like racial and religious diversities in India, because it's uh, contrary to what people would probably believe. You don't want, don't know much about the country. It's an insanely diverse place, especially religiously. And if you're not going to have religious freedom or secularism in the government, then that's a huge problem. Oh, that's interesting. I I haven't followed. I, I've never really followed Indian politics. I'll be honest, but uh, yeah, I would expect you to. It would make I, sense. I remember seeing a. John Stewart special or something talking about him initially. I can't remember like any of the details at all. Man, I miss John Stewart. Side note, uh, <laughs> I like Trevor Noah too. I think I, but no one can replace John. Like I, yeah, and, and I think Trevor's been super U.S. focused, which has kind of been a bit repetitive. I, but it makes sense. This selection has been super important. So I guess you know from that standpoint, you do want to cover it. Yeah, I was sad Larry Wilmore's show got canceled. On yeah, that was so late. I was like, what? No. His show was great. Like, he, he really took on issues like no one I've ever seen before. And especially doing it from the angle he was doing it, where he just, like, fully embraced blackness and put it on display. And it was it was refreshing to see. And It was also hilarious as hell. Like, he was so yeah. funny. Oh, his correspondence dinner speech? Did you see it? Was it was so awesome. I was dying the whole time. And everyone with their faces was just like, uh... One thing I learned from that speech is that, like, politicians cannot laugh at themselves worth shit. Like, yeah. that, Or, like, just anyone involved in the political process. Like, he made Even a joke. Reporters. What? Even reporters. Like, all the people at CNN and Fox that, like, didn't laugh at all. They were just, like, stone-faced. Yeah, he made a joke about Wolf Blitzer, and Wolf was just, like, totally frozen, which, yeah. I guess, knowing Wolf, that's not a huge surprise, but, like, it, it was, uh, it was certainly interesting to watch that. I'm gonna miss... I, I, I really hope he gets another show in a format that he can succeed, because he deserves it. I thought he did a great job. I'm yeah, I feel like he can definitely do some cool internet stuff, like with what I guess John Stewart's eventually going to do with HBO uh, at some point. Is he? Um, I didn't know about that. They, they announced the plans, but they never actually executed it. I think they still have them on contracts. So I'm guessing they'll do something at some point, but I think he's probably like, well, I'll do it some other time or whatever. But one of the cool side notes with that was, did you see like the last episode where like he, they said goodbye and like John Stewart came on to yeah. congratulate him? And it just kind of made me think about all the people that like John Stewart has like, kind of mentored like Stephen Colbert, Trevor Noah, like Larry Wilmore, uh, yeah, Samantha, Samantha B. B. Yeah, uh, you know all these other people that have like come out of his like network and like have gone to like do their own cool stuff. It like it just kind of reminded me of like the the vision I have at some point in my career for like me and all my friends. Like we just like working on some cool like large project together at some point. Like it, it was so cool to see him actually get to like live that like them together. Like like we're friends. And, like, now we support each other doing, you know, things on our own, but, like, we're still, like, very close. I don't know. It was, like, a very, very cool moment, I thought. That's going to be you and I one day, right? Hope so. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there at some point. I, don't, I hope our paths cross again at a, at a professional level. I think they will, because you'll actually like one of the startup ideas to get off. It's still on topic, but to get slightly off topic that I have um, at some point that I want to do in, like, the next couple of years. Uh, it's, I want to start a think tank that focuses on urban policy around making housing, uh, as basic, like just, just shifting land use policies. So making housing supply grow at, at like an equitable rate. Um, cause like, so, uh, organization I follow a part of a movement called effective altruism. Uh, and, and like the, like, so that's like the movement, the organization is called 80,000 hours and they publish a career guide based off of research from Oxford and a bunch of other places about like what makes a career impactful, satisfying, all that good stuff. And so one of the causes they suggest is a possible problem worth working on as far as being big, ignored, or like not having enough attention to it, things of that nature, um, is changing land use policy 
because if you take just the six largest, like, or six major metros, a lot of economic activity occurs in the U.S. of Boston, Chicago, L.A., San Fran, New York, and D.C., just within those uh, cities alone, the land use policies lose out on multiple billions of dollars every year in each city. Mm. And so, like, that's not to include other big major centers like Seattle or Houston or whatever else um, that you can think of. And so it's like, if you can figure out this problem and try to get a way to get it to work on the federal level, to work just across cities and not have it be an individual battle everywhere, or, or have even someone advocate for something like that, like, that'd be huge. Because right now there is no concerted movement to try to, like, fix that problem. But it would be, like, a huge boon to the U.S., both economically and on, like, a social level as well. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And uh, we're, we're almost up on time now, but... I wanted to ask you quickly, I, I've been working, or I've been formulating ideas, uh, again, the, the, I don't mean to get personal, but this relates, this is a policy politics question. Um, I've been thinking about transportation policy a lot, and I want to get your perspective on this. My main question I, I'm seeking to discover is, how do you make transportation policy work in areas which have, um, like, high crime dispersed throughout a city. So you look at a place like Chicago, for example, and crime is generally concentrated on the south side. Like, everyone knows that. You look at New York, crime is generally concentrated in, like, the I think it's the southern end of the Bronx, the lower end of Manhattan, and um, in Brooklyn, and a little bit of Queens. But it's not, like, widespread throughout the city. And those are two places that have really successful public transportation systems, uh, at least by most accounts and what I know on the topic. Then you look at a place like Baltimore where you just have good neighborhood, bad neighborhood. When I say bad neighborhood, I don't mean that to be offensive. I'm talking about crime. The way people look at it. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about good neighborhood, crime-ridden neighborhood. Good or non-crime-ridden neighborhood, crime-ridden neighborhood spread out and public transportation has largely failed in Baltimore because you know like I think people I I don't know if it's fear of going through those areas or what it is but I I, I've started to look at this question on a on a large I'm trying to do kind of a comparative analysis on this and see what the trend might be in that and I was wondering if you had any opinions uh or how you think public transportation issues may be solved in areas in which, you know, crime is not concentrated and is widespread. Because my general hypothesis on this is that, you know, people generally don't want to travel through crime-ridden areas if they can avoid them. So how do you overcome that problem in cities? And you usually have a case study where you can prove that. I I don't know if you have one offhand, but I want to get your thoughts on that. Um, so I would look at, uh, basically, so there's a couple different examples that I can think of that might be relevant. Um, in terms of the economic development effects that transportation can have in a positive way, a good study to look at would be Cleveland's, um, Healthline BRT. Um, so they basically like had a single, uh, bus rapid transit system, which is kind of like light rail, but more of a bus, uh, instead, but has a lot of similarities and it's usually as effective, if not more. And they gained a lot of economic development. Now, let's say you ran that same line, right? Like, and, and like, so that actually, so to give you context in terms of numbers, it, it had like, I think, $10 billion worth of uh, economic growth along the line in a span of like, I want to say like eight years or something uh, since the line had started. Um, let's say you had run that line through a neighborhood that was thought of as bad or had crime or whatever you want to consider it. Uh, depending on where the people live in the city, like within the metropolitan area, um, that would get the most benefit from using that, uh, then like, like, like that system, then I think it determines how effective it can be in terms of surviving, um, and getting enough ridership because that's often the problem with public transportation projects is that if you can't get enough ridership in the front end, the people are very quick to attack it, abandon it because they're like, Oh, this is never going to work. Let's scrap it all together and not expand it to the point where it's useful. What are the causes of or what really determines that ridership? I would think like how bad traffic conditions are would be a, yeah. a major a major player in that. But it's it's, it's also racism though, like like kind of kind of to what you were getting at. So one example I know of for a fact because we uh, discussed it in one of my city planning courses is that in Atlanta, 
they, they were going to build out the, the Metropolitan line to go out to the suburbs, but, uh, and, and, like, their line is called MARTA, like, that's the acronym for it, uh, and they, you know, like, the I, suburban... I, I was on the MARTA, like, last week, man, I was in a... Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's ironic. Um, so okay, this, this is the crazy thing is when they were like, when when they first introduced Marta. Do you know what they like? What a lot of white suburban communities would call Marta, and why they didn't want it coming through um, their suburbs. Uh, they called it moving Africans right through Atlanta. So like essentially, like they viewed it as a way to separate themselves from like the very black inner core of the city. Okay. Um, and so like in that sense, in that place, ridership is very hard to get unless you do something important, which is Put a lot of key public uh, goods like libraries, uh, community centers, or even have um, uh, private sector things like jobs and large office locations along the line. If you do that, then people almost have no choice because the incentive becomes, I save a crap ton of money by not having to own a car anymore and still get to all the places I need to go. So it's almost like uh, transportation can exist like separate from crime in a city, regardless of how it's just like like how it's spread out, because even Oakland has high ridership, and Oakland has always had the reputation of being a bad you know city, bad yeah. neighborhood per se due to crime. But it still worked because it worked so effectively along with the rest of the Bay Area. Meaning, like just using it was just so much better than having to drive around whatever neighborhoods you thought were bad that you would have to you know sit through a, a train stop or a bus stop of. And so, if you can make a complete transportation system that gets to the places that are of the most value from like private sector, you know, business centers to public goods to uh, tourist areas and then residential areas. If you can get it to be a place that connects all those effectively in a timely manner that isn't like an hour more than a car drive would be, then you can usually have a system be pretty effective because that's all what like Chicago, New York and San Fran essentially have done um, is like they've just had that work. And so like, People still take the lines that go to the south side. Like, even though the south side is thought of as, like, the most dangerous place, like, people still use those lines if they need to. Like, they use it to get to the Museum of Science and Industry. They don't want to drive their car and pay for parking down there. Like, you know, also, or to get to Hyde Park or to U of Chicago if you're a student there. So it's like, those lines still get used, even though it's still a very crime-ridden area, very bad area per se. Um, so I think the system as a whole has to work effectively. If you separate it by lines, it's a really easy way for the people who are not proponents of public transportation to single it out and say, look, this doesn't work, don't ride it, it's going through a bad neighborhood. But if it works well and it's way better than owning a car in that city, then I think it, it doesn't matter about the crime as much. No, that's good points. I, uh, yeah, I'm hoping, to, I'm hoping to study that a little bit more. I, I was wondering, you reminded me of this, did you read the 538 study at all on Ubers? Like how Uber and public transportation are like working together in New yeah. York? Yeah. Yeah. If you yeah. listeners, if you have not checked that out, uh, I'll, we'll have Raj put it in the in the podcast. But it's a it's a great study. Um, really well done. I I when I read that, I immediately thought of you because I knew you'd be interested in that. But, yeah, no, uh, I, I read that. It, it, it was well done. I think I think ride sharing's been been cool for that reason. Is as, as much as like uh, I, I think I think hopefully in the long run with this whole you know like they just put out the self driving cars in Pittsburgh if that gets to scale and like is actually reliable um, I think car car ownership could go down a ton yeah because between places that have public transportation and solid ride sharing networks like you don't really need a car to be honest yeah I I'm so excited about the possibility of all of all of this like I've uh, I've started using a ride sharing service here it's called Maven it was launched by GM here uh, yeah, yeah, yeah and uh, yeah, it's not that. very big yet and not a lot of people use it. It's like short-term Zipcar stuff, like designed to be more short-term. And they have one-way trips, so I can just go from here. Like, I take it to the airport. I just take it and park it at the airport, and it's like five bucks to get there, and it's so That's much awesome. cheaper. That's just like bike share. Yeah, it's been amazing, and you get to drive brand new cars like that. <laughs> like I, I drove a 2016 Malibu. It's a lot nicer than my '98 Corolla, and they've been <laughs> I would bet. like they're trying to drum up interest. So they've been giving out tons of coupons and stuff. And I I, I paid seven dollars to get to and from the airport, and it's like 30, 40 minutes away from here. So it it was definitely worth it for me. And I got another coupon. I'm actually, I'm headed to Raleigh this weekend, so I'm going to use it again. That's that's sick. I, I hope we get more of that stuff. In, like, like, New Orleans would, would thrive with something like that. It's a pretty small city, but, like, they've restricted car access, but then not had a good, 
public transportation system. So, like, it's really walkable in each neighborhood, but it's hard to get out of the neighborhood to other ones. I got so, you. So, like, that's, yeah. Yeah, they have it in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, New York, Boston, and Ann Arbor. <laughs> Ann Arbor, because GM is, like, located very close to here. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's been a it's been a nice service to use. But, anyway, before we get so off topic that we can no longer connect this to any political thing. Uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off for the night. Uh, it was great being with you, Tirth. It's been a pleasure. And it's been a pleasure being with you, the listener, as well. So have a good night. Adios.